if you would, take a copy of God's Word and open with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, and this morning we're going to continue to look at fasting and how fasting um, was used in the Old Testament before we get into the New Testament picture of it, which we are going to have uh, starting next week. Uh, I want to share with you this intimate moment in the life of one of our biblical heroes. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we notice that God does not always paint a rosy picture for his people But often what God does is he graciously exposes and shows the frailties and the failures of even the heroes of the faith. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see this uh, sorrowful moment that takes place within David's own life. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 15b, we see the situation that David finds himself in. And we're going to look at how fasting is connected to it. So I'm going to ask you, if you're physically able, to stand with me out of honor for God's word as we read from 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in the second half of verse 15. And God's word says, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. But they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. Verse 19, but when David saw his servants were whispering together, David understood the child was dead. David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. And then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house And when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that my child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Heavenly Father, I ask you to help us to see that even in the tragedies of your people, you show us your immense grace. Father, I pray that we would see what a desperate need we have for you today. Father, it's not just unbelievers who need you. We, your people, need you right now. So Father, teach us by your word that we might follow closely after you. We ask all this so that you might receive more praise and glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. This is a tough passage. This is really tough. These are the parts of the Bible that we often don't open up and read because they bring too much pain and too much uncertainty. 
too much confliction. Let me give you the background to this. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, this is the result of what we find in David's life as a result of his sin. Many of you know the backstory to this, that David, when he should have been out at war, is actually found at home. He sees Bathsheba, and he selfishly acts and commits the sin of adultery with her. David goes on to manipulate her and her husband, Uriah, And David goes so far as to have Uriah murdered. That's pretty bad. Just so you know, uh, God's grace is immense over all kinds of sin, including the biggies. And David's life is a reflection of that. So what does God do? Remember, this is God's chosen king for his people. What is God going to do? Well, God in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're told, sends Nathan, the prophet. And Nathan, the prophet, is sent by God to rebuke David over his sin and to show it to him. And so he tells this story and this metaphor that points out the guilt of David in the sin of adultery and manipulation and murder that he wreaks upon this family. And then we see David's response in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So we see that David expresses repentance. He recognizes that he has sinned, and not that he has sinned against other people primarily. He says, I have sinned against who? I've sinned against the Lord. He realizes his sin, and he turns to God. That is the picture of repentance, the repentance we read about in Psalm 51. Not only do we see his repentance, but we also see God's grace, don't we? Because Nathan says to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Guess what? In the midst of David's repentance, guess what God does? He forgives. He gra- Listen, I've blown it in life, but I can say so far I haven't murdered anyone. These are big sins, and yet guess what David is granted by God? Forgiveness. And that forgiveness comes through repentance. Should wrap up the story nicely, right? David turns from his sin, turns back to God. God expresses his forgiveness to David. End of story. They all lived happily ever after. Except that there are consequences to David's sin. And those consequences are not just for him. But those consequences spill out onto his own family. And so while God has forgiven David, there is still punishment for sin. 
And this is found squarely in the story of David's son. We're told in verse 15, um, actually verse 14, Nathan told David, nevertheless, because of, by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. So Nathan tells David that the child that's going to result, the child that is coming from his uh, adulterous relationship with Bathsheba is ultimately going to die. And then the second half of verse 15 tells us that the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. So not only has Uriah been a victim, we've already been told that he has died, but there is going to be another innocent victim as a result of David's sin. And that victim is going to be, we're told, the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. Notice again, God is bringing up the sin that David had committed and how this all connects to that. We're told the Lord afflicted the child as a result of sin, pain, and devastation enter in. This is God really taking the worst part of David's life and laying it bare for everyone to read and look at. It is taking the things that he hoped to keep in private and in the shadows and God brings it and shines light on it and no one wants to have that happen and yet every single one of us is guilty and could have the same thing done for us. That our sin can be brought forth and shown in the light of day. So I don't think it's hard for us to connect with what's happening here. But it's hard sometimes for us to see that even though forgiveness has happened, punishment still comes. But that's not unique to David's life, is it? Anybody remember the life of Abraham? He sinned, didn't he? Yeah, because he and his wife try to figure out a way to bail God out of his promise for a child. So Hagar steps into the situation and he has uh, an inappropriate relationship with her. Well, guess what results as, a, as it comes? Well, there's forgiveness. Abraham experiences forgiveness, but his family is going to be marked by turmoil. Same thing can be said for Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver. He defrauds his own brother. He receives forgiveness from God, but guess what follows afterwards in his life? Years of toil. Moses, the murderer, he was forgiven by God. Even in the wilderness wandering, Moses didn't do exactly what God told him to. But he was forgiven. But then at the end of Deuteronomy, guess where we find Moses? At the top of the mountain, looking out over the promised land. And God says, you're not going in. See, it's hard for us to deal with the reality that God may grant forgiveness for our sin, but yet there still may be punishment that comes. Turmoil unleashed. And I think this is purposeful. I believe what God is showing us, even in the story here of David and his son, is he's showing us once again the seriousness of our sin that should lead to a hatred of it. That when we experience God's right punishment for our sin, it should lead us to, to realize how serious it is and to hate it. If we're allowed to get away with everything, then guess what it will not produce within us? A hate for that thing. So this is actually God's gracious 
work, but there is an innocent victim to David's actions. So what's, what's going to take place? David has been told that his child is going to die. Now his child has been afflicted, has become sick. Verse 16, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. What is David's response to his son's illness? David immediately turns and petitions God. In his trouble, guess who he seeks after? God. Why? Because David realizes he can't solve this one. And David, who has been marked by selfishness throughout this entire story, is now found to care more about his child than he does about himself. That's the humbling that takes place in the midst of sin and judgment. David petitions God. He seeks after God. He he can't solve it and he needs God to act. And he prays for God to do something. See, he knows he's been told by Nathan that his son is surely going to die, but yet he doesn't give up. And I believe that's in part because of what David believes about his God. That his God is a gracious and merciful God. Not only is he righteous, not only will he judge but he's also completely gracious and loving and so he prays for God perhaps in his prayer God will intervene and heal notice he prays on behalf of the child his thoughts are not with himself David demonstrates a concern for someone else finally by the way this is I believe is the fruit of change This is what a heart being changed by God looks like. One that cares more about others than themselves. And notice how David petitions God. We're told in verse 16, he fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Now we've looked at a couple of different purposes to fasting already in the previous weeks. We looked at the fact that that fasting is connected to intensified prayer, petitioning God fervently. Um, we've also looked at the fact that, that fasting is connected to repentance and confession. Now we see not only is it those, but we also see that fasting is connected to grief and mourning and sorrow. Because as a result of what's happened to his child, David petitioning God, fast, he goes in and he lays on the ground. Can you see a picture of the humility that God has brought to David? Who was the king, he was the one in charge, but now guess where we find him because of his sin? And because of what's happened to his son, he is laying on the ground. He has been lowered to the dirt He's been brought low because of his sin. And let me tell you, if the king of Israel can be brought low, so can every other person. This is what God must do with our sin. He must humble us to see our desperate need. And so David fasts. He lays on the ground. Can you see the desperation that he demonstrates? We can read this and read it so coldly. Oh, he fasted and he went in and he lay on the ground. This is the picture of someone whose life is being ripped from them. And he is so desperate that he will actually lay on the ground pleading with God to do something for his child. 
And so we see here that fasting is connected at the same time to prayer, to humility, to grief, to sorrow. It's all wrapped up in this event. And we're told that his grief is so great that in verse 17, he's unconsolable. The elders of his house stood, verse 17, beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. His grief is unshakable. And I believe this is a picture of the grief he has over his own sin and the grief he has over his own son. Verse 18, on the seventh day, the child died. Now we read this and we think, God can't possibly be a fair God to allow this to happen. But yet God had warned his people that sin had devastating effects not only on them, but on their families. And on the seventh day, David sees that reality. But here's the thing. David was right to seek after God, even when the results weren't what he wanted. Boy, do you ever need to see a clearer picture of not getting what you ask for? To pray your guts out for something and to not have it happen? What does that do to our faith and our trust? David's in that spot. And again, he, he fervently dedicated himself to this. He was fasting. He was weeping. He was laying on the ground. He petitioned God. He did everything right that he was supposed to. And yet the results didn't match what he was pleading for. So guess what happens? His servants are, are worried about him. It says in verse 18, And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. They're worried about how he's going to respond to this. If he was that grief-stricken while his son was alive, what is going to be the case now that he is no longer? David's servants are worried about his response to the news. Will he do harm? Will he do something disastrous out of his grief? Verse 19, David overhears them. He sees his servants are whispering, and he's not dumb. He knows that this is related to his child, and David understood that the child was dead. But he still asks. He asks his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Verse 20, then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he was asked, they set food before him and he ate. What a strange response. To the news that his child has passed, David responds in a way that doesn't make sense to his servants. We're told he arose from the earth, he washed himself, he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, he went in to the house of the Lord and he worshiped God. Then he went to his own house and he ate. All of these are signs from David that his time of mourning has ended. Now it doesn't mean he won't ever mourn again. It just means that that dedicated time that he spent in mourning and petitioning God has come to a close because he demonstrates one who's moved on from mourning. 
And that doesn't make sense to his servants. Shouldn't he be grieving even more intensely? Verse 21, his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. That doesn't make sense. Why aren't you weeping even more in the tragic death of your son? Thankfully, David answers it for us. Verse 22, he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that my child may live. David fasted. He wept. He petitioned God. He did all of those things for what reason? He says, for, which means because, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. Even though he had been told his child wasn't going to live, David believes about his God that God can intercede and God does show grace. And so he petitioned him with every ounce of his being that God would demonstrate that. Because of what he believed about God, he turned to God, put his trust in God and depended on God regardless of the results. Isn't that a good thing? That even in the midst of his deepest tragedy, he would turn to God. He would petition God. He would cast himself before God's mercy and ask for the Lord to move. He said he wept and he fasted in his grief and in his petitioning of God because who knows, maybe God would change his mind. Verse 23, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? God didn't answer the way David wanted him to. God didn't act the way that David wanted him to, even in the midst of his pleading. So is that going to cause David to turn his back on God then, as one who is not trustworthy in some way? David says, the time of fasting is over. Can I bring him back again? So even there, David has told us that fasting was connected to petitioning God that fasting was a part of sorrow and grief. Pa- uh, fasting was a part of humility. Realizing your desperate need for God and realizing that nothing can satisfy, not even food in that hour. He says, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And then this phrase, why is David eating? Why did David clean himself up? Why did he worship God after his son died? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. It's a couple of things. Number one, there is a picture here of the certainty of death, and it's tough to deal with. David realizes that his son cannot come back to him that the reality of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 is there, that it's appointed man once to die. And that is true of every person that God creates in his own image, that we face that certainty. And if that was all we had, we'd be pretty miserable people living out our days and living out our months and years just waiting for this to come. 
David knows his son cannot return to him, but guess what David's faith and hope is in? He says, I shall go to him. And I do not believe, theologians will disagree, but I do not believe that all David is meaning here is that he'll die someday. What what hope is there in that? What reason to worship God is there in that if all that's left is death for him? No, I believe when David says, I shall go to him, what he's trusting in, what he has faith in, is the resurrecting work of God. The truth that there is life after this one. That David realized his son was not gone. But that David would one day join him. That's the kind of hope that God brings in the midst of sin's destruction and devastation. So yeah, God didn't answer the way David wanted him to, but David still trusts and hopes and believes that God will bring victory when there seems to be none. And I believe this is a picture of the immense grace of God that brings hope in the midst of trial, especially this desperate trial that David is going through. So what do we do with this? Well, first, do I need to convince you of the reality that sin is destructive? It devastates families. It devastates lives. Sin is not a small deal. Sin is a massive problem for every single one of us. We all share the same burden, which is the fact that we have rejected God and we decided to try and be God ourselves. And because of that, because of our sin, in comes all this death, destruction, disease, everything that plagues life that comes as a result of humanity's rebellion against God. And you and I see it every day, every week, and every month. And if if there was no God, that'd be a tough pill to swallow. But while our sin is real and our sorrow can be immense at times in our lives, God is supremely gracious in those times. God is supremely faithful to unfaithful people like me. And in these times when we are confronted with our sin and the reality of it and the destruction that it brings, what are we to do with that? Are we to run from God? Are we to turn our back on him? Are we to forsake him? I want you to note that David did not. But rather in that devastation of his life, in that destruction, guess where he turns? Full-fledged devotion to his God. Who, yes, brought great turmoil, but also brings great relief and restoration. See, we need to realize that God is good even in the midst of both of them. In the midst of devastation, God is still good. I know it's hard to see sometimes. I know sometimes it it doesn't feel that way. And many times when those trials come, we run from God. We turn away from him. But I want you to realize that God is good even during the tough times. Because it's in those times that God is able to show us our desperate need for him how no one and nothing satisfies like he does. 
So guess what we need to do in those times of devastation, in those times when we've seen the destructiveness of what our sin has brought? We don't run from God, we run to him. And may we, like David, show an unbelievable devotion to God, even in the midst of our circumstances. That we might trust God enough that we would turn to him even when it seems like his hand is heavy upon us. That we would see that there is no one who comforts like he does. There is no one who rescues like he does. There is no one who brings hope like Jesus Christ alone. There's no one who can promise life in a story marked by death. What you and I have to celebrate today is the fact that no matter what devastation comes, Jesus is greater than all of it. And you can trust him. It's hard, but you can trust him. And maybe what we need to be doing is instead of trying to fix the problem on our own or instead of running from God, maybe we need to turn to him and ask him to have mercy and grace on us. Sometimes he'll answer, right, by relieving us of what we're dealing with, but sometimes his answer is, trust me through it. Fasting is part of how we show our dependence and our devotion to God. When we fast, what we're doing is we're saying to God, I need you more than anything this world has. And that comes in times when we just need to petition God desperately for him to do something, to act for his glory. It also comes when we're confessing and repenting of our sin. We're pleading with God, saying that we love him more than we love our sin. And we're showing in the fact that we give up these things to devote ourselves to him. But we also do it in grief and in sorrow. Our grief and our sorrow can push us back to him. And when we fast in connection with that, we express God, to, to God our desperate longing for him above everything else. That in the midst of our grief and our sorrow, God brings hope. Folks, there are families in our church right now that are hurting really bad. I mean really bad. I've done more funerals, and I'm going to do more funerals in the past three weeks than I've done in probably a year and a half. It's not coronavirus related. It's just people who are experiencing the reality of what sin brings. It brings tough sorrow and grief and pain. But through the midst of all that, guess what I'm able to do? Like Nathan did for David, I'm able to point people to the hope that is found in Christ who conquered death and sin so that we might have life everlasting. In fasting, we show our dependence on God and our desperate need for him. I'll be honest with you, I haven't done it for a long time. I haven't fasted in a long time. And maybe part of that is because I haven't been seeking after him like I should. Right? I haven't been dedicating myself to these things as I should. We all need it. Every single one of us needs God desperately. And fasting is one of those disciplines God has given us to help us to pursue him and to grow in Christ-likeness. So in the midst of your grief, rather than running from God, rather than turning to other things for comfort, Perhaps it's time to turn back to God and to devote ourselves to him. And fasting is one of those ways we can do it.
It's a beautiful thing that God grants to us. That in our desperate need for him, he shows completely undeserved grace. Listen, David was to blame for what took place. If anyone didn't deserve grace, it was him, and yet God showed it to him. And just so you know, our God loves to show grace to people who need it. Our God loves to show grace to those who are found in turmoil and desperation. And in that, we, like David, might be able to express what he found in Psalm 51. So to close, let's read Psalm 51 again. This is David's response to everything happening to him that we just looked at. You ready? Let's read it now with this situation in mind. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, uh, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Remember, he's dealing with his sick son, and here he realizes that God is right in his judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, You delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. If you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Have we not just seen that lived out in the pages of 2 Samuel chapter 12? David's desperate pleading with God to bring grace. And that when grace is received, David says he responds with praise and rejoicing to God. Not because the circumstances worked out the way he wanted, but because God has shown himself to be faithful even in the midst of devastation. My prayer for every one of us is we see how serious our sin is, how desperately we need rescue, 
and how beautiful and gracious God is to bring rescue to us by his son. That we are able as Christians who have been saved, who have been redeemed from our sin, regardless of what our circumstances look like now, regardless of what we're walking through, we are able to proclaim that God is good to us. And we're also able to proclaim that every single day, our need for God does not waver. Our need for God is constant. So whatever you're going through right now, whether it's good or bad, you need Jesus. You need him desperately. And he loves to be gracious to his people. This morning, we're going to celebrate Lord's Supper together. We haven't done it since coronavirus, and boy, it is overdue, isn't it? And we're going to have to do it differently. But one of the things we do before we take Lord's Supper together as a family is we confess sin to God, we make relationships right, and we petition God to act among us. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. I'm going to ask you to pray, you and God. And between you and the Lord this morning, I want you to know in your heart that you're trusting in Christ alone. That you're not trusting in sacrifices, you're not trusting in offerings, because God doesn't desire those. What God desires is a contrite heart, a heart that is broken over sin, a heart that is in desperate need of forgiveness. And so this morning, if you're here and you've been trying to be a good enough person to convince God to allow you to be in his presence, I want you to see that you cannot do it, that our works are as filthy rags before him, and he does not desire that we offer up work, but rather through Jesus Christ, God has done everything necessary to pay for your sin and to rescue you from the depths of death. And this morning, what God calls on you to do is to return to him. Turn away from sin and trust in Christ alone. This morning, if you've never done that, I am pleading with you. Turn to Jesus. Trust in his work on the cross alone. Believe that when he said it is finished, he meant it. That everything necessary to save you from your sin was accomplished by him. And trust in his resurrection from the dead. That he's not a dead king. He is the everlasting, eternal king. Trust in him alone. And for Christians in the room, remember that we need God just as much as other people do. We need Jesus just as much as our neighbor does. And, and this morning, I pray that you will see that Christ is your only hope to walk in righteousness and to honor God. And so this morning as Christians, I'm reminding you, devote yourself to your King. Devote yourself to your Father. In the midst of your devastation and sin, don't run from him. Run to him because he calls for you to run as a child would run to their father. 
As Christians, may we see that fasting is actually a great gift that God has given us to show our, de our dependence on him and to show that we love him more than anything else this world can offer. Maybe in your times of desperate petitioning and prayer, maybe in times of your confession and repentance of sin, maybe in times of your sorrow and weeping, maybe you need to fast while you seek God. Realize what grace he has shown us in that. And as a church, may we realize we need God every day. God's not done with this place. God is not done with Fairhaven. He's doing great things among us, but we desperately need him to move and to work. And may we petition God that he would display his mighty hand as we live every day. And sometimes his mighty hand is small little victories and sometimes it's mountaintop experiences. But may we as a church realize that we're not solving these problems. Only God is great to do these things. And as a church, may we display to him our desperate need for God to act. This morning as we take up Lord's Supper, I encourage you to confess sin to God, to seek Him, that we might do this for His glory and honor. Heavenly Father, You know every heart in this place, including mine. And God, You are so good to us. God, I can't even, I can't even thank You enough for how good You are to us when we're not good to You. And though David deserved every bit of punishment, your gracious hand was on him. You showed immense forgiveness and love. And Father, as your people today, we express that we have been recipients of that same love through Jesus Christ. And so Father, may everything we do be about devotion to you. God, may it not be about ritual, may it not be about tradition, may it be because we love you more than anything else. Forgive us, God, where we fail you. Forgive us. We plead the blood of Jesus again, that it, his blood is all that is necessary to cleanse us. We thank you for his shed blood on the cross, and that in doing it, he paid it all. And Every single sin I would ever create, every single sin I'd ever do, every single thought that would ever displease you, Jesus has paid for every single bit of it. And I want to give you praise this morning for that. May the people who are yours, may they give you praise this morning for your impressive and immense and abundant forgiveness in their life. God, we stand here today as blood-bought believers who have been washed clean by the King. May everything we do be a testimony to that. God, we don't deserve it, but you give it. And we thank you. So Father, in this time of Lord's Supper, may we do this because we love you, not because we have to. May we do this not because it's the next thing on the agenda. May we do this because we want to remember that our King died for us. He bled for us. He sacrificed himself for us and that he conquered death. So Father, as we celebrate, may we remember 
the beautiful work of Jesus. We ask it all in Jesus' name.